Order! Order! Sit, order! I know what I'm doing. Order! Uh, order! There's no good people shouting. There will be an opportunity for other points of order, but the Prime Minister must and will be heard. Order! Order! The honourable gentleman has got to learn the art of patience. And if he is patient, if he deploys Zen, he will find that it is ultimately to everybody's advantage. So we'll leave it there and we come now. Now, I'm not. I did, if it, oh, very well. Order! Order! Zen! Restraint! Patience! Order! Hello and welcome to our latest podcast done in the time of social distancing. Uh, this is the Maricopa County Justice Court's Hearing Officer Updates and Roundtable. Uh, and uh, I'm Charles Zetternetto, the uh, Judicial Education Officer. We are joined by the JP of the Year. Uh, Anna Huberman from Country Meadows Justice Court, and Susan Dykoff, who as of today is still the uh, MCJC Administrative Pro Tem. Uh, you, do, you will find our bios and the materials, and please feel free to call us if you have any questions. Uh, and the materials, as always, are found in Hightail. The uh, COJET certificate is there as well if you do want COJET credit. Uh, go ahead and print that off and send that into Esther. And we'll go ahead with slide number two. All right, so uh, this is Judge Anna Huberman, and um, I am going to uh, start this off by uh, talking about the latest updates that we have from the Supreme Court. The latest administrative order was just signed. Um, as you all might know, there has been a flurry of administrative orders and changes since uh, the COVID-19 crisis uh, started, and the courts uh, were scrambling to try to make sure that we continued as our open doors, that people could still access justice and come to our courts, but also trying to comply with all the distancing rules and the stay-at-home orders. So the newest order uh, goes into effect on June 1st. Uh, they call it Phase 1. So up until now, we've all been in Phase 0. Phase 1 starts on June 1st. But the change is not that significant. It still states that in-person contact should be limited as much as possible which means we will continue, when possible, with telephonic or video conferencing. I do think that uh, you will probably see different courts react in different ways to this order, and it could be that some courts will allow more in-person uh, contacts than others, but the general rule is that when there is in-person contact, there should be no more than 10 people in the court at any in the courtroom at any time, and that everyone should stay six feet apart. Masks are required, so everyone who enters the court building must wear a mask. That includes 
the hearing officers. Uh, it includes the judges, obviously, uh, the staff, everybody, and the public. So everyone should bring their own mask. The court will have some disposable mask to give out if there's an emergency matter that must be heard and the person doesn't bring their mask. But the requirement is that everybody will wear their own mask. And you, as a hearing officer, may allow them to take their mask off in order to testify. But if not, they should be wearing masks at all times. Now, as to the backlog of cases, obviously when all this happened in March, everything happened very suddenly. There wasn't much time to react. And obviously the first reaction was, we canceled everything. So you were all probably called and told that your March hearings and your April hearings were not being conducted. But now all of our courts have found that we have a very big backlog of cases. Cases are starting to stack up. So we definitely will probably be calling upon the hearing officers to help us clear out the backlog um, as the time goes by and as we're able to do so. And Judge, how will that backlog be heard, do you think? What? Well, then we can move on to the next slide um, where we talk about the video conferencing. So a lot of our courts have already moved into a virtual setting. The, the first virtual setting that was created was what we call the virtual courtroom, which used the technology that we have through the FTR system where we were able to call in everybody to one number and each court was assigned a specific PIN number for that court. So everyone who went in through that PIN number went into the same courtroom. So instead of walking into the courtroom, you were calling into the courtroom, but everybody was in the same room. Everybody who was on the phone could hear everybody else. We have now recently be given a license to work with GoToMeeting. So that will take us now to the video portion of it. Up until now, uh, like I said, it has been only audio, which is one of the reasons that a lot of the hearings were not done. I know that some courts did do small claims on audio, but um, hopefully more courts will be uh, able to get the, the video set up, the video conferencing, and be able to do it, you know, during this time, uh, all of us, well, we've been at home, this is the way that everyone has been communicating with family and friends is through these virtual uh, chats. There's, there's a series of them out there. Um, everybody uh, has their favorite program that they use for these. But GoToMeeting is the one that has been licensed by the court, so that is the only one that we can use uh, in the court because we have a way to uh, connect through the court, and we can record it on the FTR. So the first thing that I would say is that everybody needs to contact the court where they are working to determine if that court is using the video technology, and so you can get a, a, a class or a, a course or, or some instructions as to how to use it, how the court is using it, and how all of these hearings are being dealt with by the court to make sure that they are being uh, recorded on the FTR. So the, because of the way it's set up, most of our computers with the audio and that the FTR uh, audio portion is on a different computer 
it's hard to get everything integrated into one computer. So this would actually allow the hearing officers to be able to um, even do the hearings from home. You could log in. You could do the hearing completely from your home as long as someone in the courtroom connects the hearing to the audio and calls into the FTR number. So then you would be doing it from home, but it would still be recorded. Um, there, it, it says uh, in your materials, if you want to check slide number three, it talks about examples uh, that, that Texas is live streaming their cases, because that's the other issue, because all of our hearings are public. We need to be sure that the public has access to our video stream or to our virtual courtroom in case anybody wants to sit in. We can't, because we're using a remote setting, make our hearings now private or not public. Um, the, the, uh, the issue becomes, can the judicial officer do any of this on their own, or do they need someone to help out with the technology? And when we get a little bit, um, in a few moments we're going to talk more about the details of how to conduct the hearings on this virtual platform, um, you might see that it might be difficult for the judicial officer to be dealing with the sound, with the video, with the acceptance of evidence, with all the different things that might be happening, and maybe uh, have a bailiff or someone in the court that can help. Um, that's something, again, that you'll have to deal with each individual court to see how they're planning on on doing that. Judge, we have a couple of, uh, couple of small claims hearings uh, from home. The, the hearing officer dialing in from home, the court court dialing into the virtual courtroom and then using the FCR board. That was audio only. That seemed to work reasonably well. In that case, the hearing officer will get the case filed by email. Um, before the case and email the information back. We've also had um, our first set of civil traffic hearings downtown this week using um, video conferencing. Instead of go to meeting with Sophia, though if you're thinking about that, we're not going to use that again, but we'll go to meeting will be the, the, the place going forward. And I want to mention that um, Judge Huberman did a eviction trial on uh, go to meeting, and that was, uh, she, made it, she made it available for us to look at. It was really fabulous. So. The Texas court is a live stream only when the court is in session. So if there is a link that you get, David Marquez is the person who knows most about this. He's at administration. Um, if the court's in session, you can look at it on YouTube. If it's not in session, it just says, you know, hold on, we'll be with you soon. So um, that's kind of how that's working. All right. How do we move forward into this new normal? For now, anyway. All right, and we have moved on to slide five, Susan. This is Judge Huberman. So she, being the, being the one who has done the most recent and the most extensive trial online on video conference, I asked her to talk about what are the best practices for doing this. Well, um, so, I mean, I think there's, this, is, this is a long topic and we could talk for a long time about this, uh, but I think that one of the um, one of the important things to consider is that we will be asking people 
to use a technology that they might not all be completely familiar with. And obviously, I think that all of this works better if we're working off of computers, but I tend to think that most people are going to try to do this through a phone, which will give them more limited access because the screen is smaller and there's only so much that they'll be able to to see and do through the through the screen. Uh, but I do believe, which is why I wanted to do the trial on video, that video adds a dimension that just telephonic does not allow. I had, until the date that I did the trial, had been doing all of my eviction cases uh, in the virtual courtroom just with audio, and I thought it was working pretty well. And we even did some motions that worked uh, fairly well with the with the um, with the audio, but this trial in particular had an issue that had a lot to do with the credibility of one of the witnesses as to what they were going to say, and I just felt that over the phone there was no way to be able to assess any of that, and so I thought that the video was important. It was actually a really great experience. I I didn't feel that. I was really worst off because we did it by video instead of by uh, in person. But I will say that all the parties really need to be uh, tuned into what's happening because they will be required to submit their evidence and certain things ahead of time because a lot of things will not be able to be done uh, during once the hearing is started on video. So the, all of these meeting um, softwares have a way to share a screen where whoever has the computer, can all, whoever the organizer is, can allow any of the participants to bring up their screen. So if you have a document on the screen that you want the judge and the other participants to see, you can share the screen, and they can submit it that way. But again... You know, you, you do need to understand that I don't think a lot of the participants are going to be that technologically savvy to be able to do that. And I don't think that on a phone they would be able to share the screen in the same way. So those are all things that need to be made clear. Uh, I think on the one hand it will be up to the courts that when they send out the notices for hearing to make sure that everyone understands what the technological requirements are and what they need to do uh, to prepare for the hearing. And then I would suggest that the hearing officers also make it clear when the, uh, when, before the, when the hearing starts to make sure that everyone understands. And maybe enough, a question would be, does anyone have any documents that they're going to want the court to see in this hearing that you have not yet submitted? And then maybe give them a few minutes to email it. Um, all the courts have an email address. So the emails can be sent to the court. People just really need to take a picture of whatever document they have, attach it to an email and send it, and that way it can be sent uh, to the court and to the other party. So I think that that, um, that would probably be a good idea, and if they, they, they still need to send it, you would give them maybe five minutes uh, to do so, and that way uh, you wouldn't fall into this issue of having sanctions for not submitting uh, the exhibits before the hearing. Uh, you know, while claims is still an informal proceeding, 
and it doesn't follow any specific rules of evidence. So there can be some leeway in some of the things that can be admitted. So we want to be uh, very informal in the sense of being um, open to receive evidence in every way possible, and we also want to be sure that we receive everything that would make our decision be fair so we have the evidence in front of us instead of uh, being hyper-technical and not letting people uh, present their case because of that. But again, once the hearing starts, then we are in the hearing and the parties do have the obligation to present their evidence and bring their evidence to court. So that is something that you also need to consider. Um, the, the, if everybody has uh, videos, and the, I don't think we have a problem with identification. That one of the reasons that I personally did not want my court to use uh, just audio for uh, civil topics, <laughs> excuse me, was because we, how, how does a police officer ID the the defendant? That, that's what, an, an essential element of the charge. And so um, as, as long as the parties agree that they are willing to do this by video and be ID'd by video, I think that is, uh, is, still, uh, is still a good option. Um, the, I think the same with the witnesses. The, I think that the problem that you have with the witnesses is, uh, well, we would have in civil, I don't know if it's small claims, I don't think you would send someone outside um, to, to not see the testimony while someone else is um, testifying, as you would have to actually have them sign out, leave the conference, and then call back in at a certain point. That might be a little bit of an issue. I find that the handling of bystanders has turned into an unexpected problem, uh, which I think hopefully with the video might be a little bit more um, resolvable than it was by phone. Uh, in the courtroom, there's always someone who wants to help someone else, and they come in, and they want to sit with them at the table, and they talk to them, and or yell from the back of the courtroom and tell them what to say. But when you're there watching them, you can stop them from doing that, and if necessary, you can tell them to leave the courtroom. When you're on the phone with them, that becomes very difficult because you can't see. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who is talking to that person. So you have to be kind of vigilant to, to hear. And it happened to me, it's happened to me a couple of times now that I've had people trying to tell the one of the parties what to say. I've had the, the father of a defendant actually jump in on a phone call and start uh, yelling at me. Um, and it becomes a little bit more difficult because you can't, kick them out. Uh, so at that point, you would have to decide if you, you know, you can tell them you need to make that person stop speaking. If they speak again, I'm just going to have to uh, reset the hearing or, you know, you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. I mean, it's only happened to be twice, so I don't think it's something that I wouldn't anticipate it happening a lot. But I, I, can, I can imagine that a small claims hearing, someone will have their friend next to them trying to explain a better way to say things. So you just have to be a little bit vigilant. I think with the video, at least you'll be able to see what's on the screen. And you can tell if someone's moving their head to one side or another, 
if they seem to be listening to someone else, maybe you can figure that out. Yeah, I, um, I, yes. I, I had an order of protection hearing between two sisters, and the mother was on the line with one of the sisters, and she started screaming about how stupid it was for her daughters to be in court getting this order of protection. And it's like, well, I kind of agree with you, but you have to stop stop interrupting. So, sorry. I think that what, with the video at least, um, when they see that you're there, um, I think people will behave in a different way. I think with the audio alone, it's very difficult for them to see who they're dealing with. And they... They don't see who's listening to them, and so it's easier for them to kind of fly off the handle. Yeah. Uh, I had one case. I had a case once where they asked me, "Who are you?" And I was like, "I'm the judge." But it's obvious they can't see me. They don't know. They just hear a, a voice coming through the phone line. And so, I think that all of those things are pretty important to make clear from the beginning who is present, introduce yourself, make sure that everybody understands and understand who's on the line, who's allowed to speak. And then, of course, comes how are we going to allow them to speak? Um, with the video systems, you as an organizer do have the ability to mute the microphones. So if someone is continuously interrupting, you could probably just mute their microphone and make them stop. Um, but again, you know, just like you would do in court, it's important to tell them everyone will have their opportunity to speak, I will call upon you when it's time to speak. Please don't interrupt. Just the same way that you would do it. Interruptions by video or virtual interruptions are a little bit more complicated because there's always a lag in time. And so by the time the person starts interrupting and the sound comes through, something else is maybe you've moved on to start talking about something else. But so you have to be a little bit cognizant of those delays in, in the audio. Um, GoToMeeting, unfortunately, does not have a raise your hand option. They did tell me that they are looking into it and hopefully it will come soon. Uh, with Zoom, you might have seen there's a little button that you click when you want to raise your hand when you want to ask a question. So you would tell the participants if you have something to ask, you know, raise your hand. Um, but if you're on video, you just ask them to actually raise their hand, put their hand up in front of the camera, and show you that they have something to say, and that way you can call upon them. <laughs> I think it's very important that everybody make all of these ground rules clear from the very beginning, explain how it's going to work, um, and explain uh, that, um, that 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 even though everybody is sitting in a different location, once we are all on screen, we are all in the same courtroom and that we expect the etiquette of the court to be followed. With we did hear, we did hear of a case where uh, there was, I don't, and this may have been mediators talking about it, but a situation where there was a video conference and the, and the parties were on the video conference, but there was an attorney in the room next door, and so the, one of the participants would call a break and run next door and talk to their attorney and then come back in. So obviously attorneys are not permitted in small claims. I, I wonder how if you would have handled that or thought about that, and also maybe talk about if there's anything different with interpreters if we're using video. Well, I think that... Uh 
you know, I mean, I, the way I saw it when I did the trial by, with, with the video was that once we were in the courtroom, once all the parties were together on the screen, court had started, and by then it just kind of moved like court. You wouldn't normally allow someone in the middle of a court hearing to stand up and leave. I need to come back in two minutes. Allow me. I mean, obviously, if someone has an emergency, something happens. But normally, you wouldn't allow someone to say, oh, give me just a minute and walk out, make another phone call and come back, right? So I, th I think it, it kind of goes to that. I also think that, and, and this is the one thing that, and, and maybe it's just uh, wishful thinking, uh, but I tend to believe that people tell the truth and people are honest. And when they are on the phone and they're telling you something and they say, I have this document here, that they really have the document, that they aren't just saying things. I don't, I wouldn't expect someone to, to make, uh, run out of, the, out of the hearing just to go make a phone call to ask someone what to say. But there might be some savvy participants who might want to try to do that. I think the other person turn into the same issue as what we have in the courtroom. I know that a lot of courts do not have in-person interpreters, and they do them remotely. So the interpreter comes in remotely. They would come in remotely into the go-to meeting in the same exact way. I did reach out to the interpreter's office, though, and ask about the go-to meeting. And if they are working for on their laptops, they actually do have access to the same program. And so they can use the same link to sign in. And so they can actually be present in the courtroom. So the interpreting would still have to be consecutive. It can't be simultaneous. So you can't expect to be speaking and the interpreter interpreting at the same time because obviously it's only one audio feed. But at least you'll have the visual cue and the interpreter can raise their hand. For example, if you're going... Uh, too fast, or if you said too much and the interpreter needs you to stop so they can start interpreting, it will be a visually easier to do than if you were just on audio. So I also think there's much of a difference in the way you handle the interpreters when you use language line, uh, because it would still be the same kind of system. And what about the... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Please finish the thought. I was just going to say that if the interpreter was able to appear by video that would even, it, it actually would make the interpreter's job much easier. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think participants are allowed to record the hearing, is that right? Uh, no one is allowed to record court at all. They're actually not allowed to uh, video in court either unless the, there's, they've asked for permission and it's been, and it's been allowed. So, the thing with these virtual meeting rooms is that they all have a record function, but once the record function is turned on, everybody can hear that it's being recorded. So you would know if they start recording, you would just tell them to stop recording. Um, additionally, there's nothing that would stop them from having their phone on the side of the table and be recording it. But the truth is that in court, there's no way we could stop them if they were doing that either, right? We have no way of knowing. We can just tell them at the outset. 
Yeah. Right. We could just tell them from the outset. We could tell them that we're recording. Um, and and since you're speaking of recording, these the, when we record through the FTR, the FTR does not record the video of our meeting, of our of our trial, only the audio. But you are more than welcome to to turn on the recording function and record the hearing where it would record the screen as everyone is seeing it, and you, that would be saved to a cloud, and you would be able to have that as a backup if you wanted to have the video part. That's a really good point. All right, and, and I want to add, uh, backing up to how do you exclude witnesses from the room or the phone call or the video hearing, the basis for that is the rule of evidence 615-615. And guess what? The rules of evidence do not apply in small claims or civil traffic hearings. Uh, so you, you can deny that motion. Anything else before we're done with slide four? Well, we were talking a little bit about, in small claims especially, about people not having turned their exhibits in the court ahead of time. It's more important in today's world that they turn them in ahead of time so they can be emailed to um, the, the hearing officer and so that and so the other party can have received them and have a chance to look at them because you can't exchange things paper. Um, but we were also talking about, you know, how to manage that, how to manage when someone has an exhibit that they haven't made available, and you know, other is, the, is the only option continuing the case until that's been done, or, you know, are there sanctions that should be imposed, or is there another workaround? I mean, the, the, the thing is that the only actual sanction, if you want to call it a sanction, is to not allow that evidence to be admitted. There is no other uh, sanction. Um, so, but that's not going to be our first thing that we do. Right. That's that's what I mean. I think that we want to be sure that we are resolving all uh, cases on their merits and not just on technicalities. Um, but we also want to be sure that when the parties are told today is the day of your hearing, that there's an expectation for both parties that the hearing will be held that day. And that if I took off time from work or I made special accommodations for someone to uh, watch my children for one hour so I could do my small claims hearing that because the other party is not ready, we're going to say, oh, we're just going to do this again next week. Um, so we have to be mindful to all the situations. Uh, I think a lot of this um, will depend on the notices that the courts themselves are sending out to the litigants to let them know what is expected or that the hearing officer... Uh, be sure that they make that, um, to ask that question before we start so we're not in the middle of the hearing saying, well, I have it here, how am I going to send it to you? Should I just put the paper up to the camera or something like that? That's a great point. Charles, did you have something to add? No. All right, we will move on to slide five. And that is who is authorized to appear. And it does say, see the attached form. So in the back of the packet, uh, please turn to that form. I hope you've all seen this before. Uh, it does not include civil traffic. So just as a, be a brief review for civil traffic, uh, the defendant can appear, uh, 
by uh, himself or with uh, with an attorney. The attorney can appear on behalf of the defendant, uh, and the state is almost always, without exception, represented by an officer. Uh, if an attorney is to appear, they are supposed to give 10 days notice. Uh, if they don't, I suggest you, you go ahead and let, let them appear anyway because um, the, the county prosecutors are not going to appear regardless in our courts. For small claims, let's look at the chart, and that is now encapsulated in small claim rule one. And an individual, even um, as opposed to other courts, uh, a spouse can represent both spouses. Uh, and then for an active general partner or authorized full-time employee of a partnership, a full-time officer or authorized employee of a corporation, an active member or authorized full-time employee for an association, any other organization or entity shall be represented by an active member or authorized full-time employee. The employee of the association or the management company is specifically authorized in writing by the association to appear on behalf of the association. And you'll see in that chart, authorized is bold and underlined in a couple of places. There are courts, and this is where it's important to know your judge, there are courts that demand that the employee have that written authorization uh, with them. Uh, and our frequent flyers to small claims court know that, and they'll come and they'll wave it, here's, here's my authorization. Um, so if you are in a court that does require that, make sure they have it. They can get that form on the internet uh, that is available at our Justice Court website. Uh, and if an employee does not have that, then the plaintiff essentially has failed to appear. Uh, in that instance, um, I, I would suggest that you go ahead and continue the matter. Uh, and the last little note there is for attorneys. Attorneys cannot appear unless they're actually a party or there's a written stipulation. I've never seen a written stipulation allowing attorneys to appear in small claims court. Have either of you? I have not. Yeah. All right. So anything else before we move on? You know, I've only ever seen attorneys appear at the hearing without filing, having filed a notice of appearance and demand to continue the case right there and there. So. All right. So what are you going to do if an attorney shows at, uh, appears at the hearing? Well, they haven't, um, they haven't filed a notice of appearance in time, so it's untimely. Um, in, the, in the particular case that I saw, there was a good reason for that, and so there was a good reason to continue the hearing. But I think normally you wouldn't continue the hearing. You'd go ahead without the attorney. Well, and, and because any request to uh, move the case to the civil division has to be done 10 days before the hearing, and so if the attorney is going to walk in that day and request a continuance so they can meet the 10 days, then they are just using it in an incorrect way. They still didn't make the request 10 days before the hearing. So that would not be allowed. And those of you who've heard me talk about this subject before, uh, just because you're an attorney doesn't mean that you even know that there are rules of procedure for civil traffic and voting cases. Uh, there are attorneys who don't know that there are rules of procedure for protective orders, so I'm willing to bet that there are attorneys who don't know that we now have rules of procedure for small claims court. 
Uh, and by this point, you all should have read those rules of procedure for small claims and hopefully have them memorized. Susan is waving them. Thank you, Susan. Uh, but don't assume that an attorney uh, even is aware of that provision. I, they're always taken by surprise when, when you ask them at a civil traffic hearing, well, you did realize that you were supposed to file a notice of appearance 10 days before the hearing. Uh, what? So our next slide is slide number six, and that is amending the complaint. And you can't. You cannot amend a complaint. That um, I thought was the rule all along because we do have a statute that says there are only two permissible motions, and this was not one of the permissible motions. Uh, but now it's actually codified that you cannot amend the complaint. It's also in the rules of small claims procedure that a John Doe cannot be, cannot be sued. Rule 2B of the small claims rules specifically says you have to, um, you have to sue someone by their actual name. Uh, so if you don't know the name, you cannot sue them. When you learn the name, you cannot amend the complaint. Uh, so we're not going to get uh, Mr. Smith and Jane Doe Smith. It's just going to be a suit against Mr. Smith. Uh, one of the things that a person can do if they are within the statute of limitations is when they learn the name, if the defendant hasn't answered yet, they can go ahead and file a motion to dismiss and then refile the complaint with both of their names and reserve it to both of the parties. Uh, but there are no John or Jane Doe's and there are no amendments to the complaint. There are also no amendments to counterclaims for the same reasons. Some of these questions are, are from, this is a true roundtable, these are questions I've been collecting over the course of the year from emails and various other concerns people have raised. This next one is, is um, also one that the hearing officers have brought up to me. And this is whether or not you should raise potentially fatal defenses on behalf of the parties. Uh, for example, the statute of limitations. And this ties into our, our dealing with self-represented litigants and how far do you go in terms of being an impartial decision maker uh, to someone who's actually actively assisting a party. Uh, if it's a fairly obvious defense of statute of limitations, you might want to ask the plaintiff, uh, can you explain to me how um, how this doesn't how this isn't barred by the statute of limitations. Uh, I think you do have to be careful when you do that. You do have to allow a party to respond to that because they might come up with an, an argument that that you weren't aware of, like the defendant, for some reason, the, the statute of limitations was told. Uh, but you, you do want to be careful about that. Uh, Judge Huberman, did you want to chime in? No, I mean, I will say, and I, and I think this will tie into other slides that we'll talk about, too, that all hearing officers uh, volunteer to do this because they want to do what's right. And it's very hard sometimes to go forward with something when you feel that it's not right. And so we want to step in and help. And I think that... Uh, what was just explained is important to understand that 
we kind of have to separate the roles that we are not the advocates for the parties. We do obviously want to put the parties um, in a position where they're able to present their cases in a fair way, but we don't put the case on for them. And we do have a best practice on dealing with self-represented litigants that was awarded a strategic agenda award by the Arizona Supreme Court. Um, you'll, and we've done several classes on dealing with self-represented litigants. You can find those materials in Hightail. You can find the podcasts on the podcast site. And um, I suggest you listen to them. And that leads into another, and it's this next slide, which uh, also comes from some questions and things that have come up over the last year. You know, there's a temptation in a small claims case to, to, uh, to kind of step away from the script or the structure uh, of a trial. Um, and I want to encourage everybody not to do that. But it's not an informal, we're going to all just sit down and sort of dig through the facts and really figure this out. Um, I get, uh, it causes confusion, and people don't know when they're allowed to talk, and I, and I get complaints because they feel like they never knew when it was their time to speak. So a couple of things is when is it appropriate for hearing officers to ask questions and what kinds of questions can they ask and, uh, and why is the structure important? Why can't we just have a dialogue? Josh? Because the, and again, I think this ties back to what I was just saying, that we all want to do what's right and we want to feel that justice has been served. But we do have a court system that we are not independent investigators that we're trying to get to the truth of the matter. We are allowing the parties to present the evidence that they feel will lead us to know what the truth of the matter is. And so if we start um, adding to that or uh, bolstering whatever it is that is being presented, then we are not following what the court system is envisioned to do. So um, sometimes it's, um, it's, 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 I guess the word is right, like Susan just said, it's very tempting to just want to uh, get to, the, to the, the point of the matter right away because parties a lot of times have a hard time getting to the point. They talk around, they get uh, bogged down on the wrong details. They were very upset about the way something was said when all we really care about, care about is what was said. And so it's, sometimes it's just easier for us to say, well, why don't I just find out on my own what happened? and then I can make a decision. We have to be very, very careful with that. So hearing officers are allowed to ask questions, and they can, it's in the rules and it is permitted, but it can't be with your own agenda. You have to be asking these questions only with the intent of clarifying something that was said, but not to find out new information. It's, you know, if, if you can say something like, I wasn't clear on the chronology. What happened first? Or you can say something like, when did that conversation happen? Right? Try to keep people focused and try to get to what they're telling you but not adding onto why did you say that? You wouldn't ask that because 
that is not a line of inquiry that you should be going into. If it's not clear, you could ask the question like, are you saying you knew or you didn't know? So maybe just to clarify, but not to find your own, um, if, if you, I mean, it's very common because we've all seen it, that plaintiffs have a very hard time knowing what type of evidence to present uh, to support their claim, and they just think that if they tell you the story over and over again, you're going to accept it, and you're going to understand their logic, and you're going to give them what they want. And it is not up to you to tell them, um, to, to give them pointers on how to present the case better. You can tell them things like, um, do you have any documentation to show? Do you have a witness who can uh, explain that to me? Or something along those lines. But you shouldn't be uh, adding or trying to find out things that aren't being told. Uh, obviously, if someone, you know, brought the documentation in and then they forget to talk about it during the trial, I don't think it's inappropriate to say, well, I see that you presented me with this document. Uh, are you planning on using it? You know, something to um, just prod them to remembering what they need to do. Um, I think that um, I think it's easy to fall into the trap to think that if I could just sit them down, I can convince them that if they could find a middle ground or that they're right or they're wrong or and we shouldn't do that at all. It's very, very typical that they're arguing, and this will happen in small claims. Uh, the slide talks about small claims, but I think the same thing happens with civil traffic, that they will argue with you as to why you're making that decision. When you say, I didn't hear evidence of, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, right away someone will jump in and say, but I showed you X, Y, and Z, right? So I think you just need to be firm. Don't allow them to argue with you. You don't go back and forth. You don't need to explain to them again uh, why you are deciding what you're deciding. I will just stop them and say, I have already made my decision. I am just explaining it to you now. The time you had to make your case is now over, and, and we're done. If they, they want to continue arguing, when they, you go back to the rules as to how you manage your courtroom. But no need to be... Uh, arguing back and forth over the over the, your decision. On the other hand, I would also say you need to question what happens if you don't explain your decision. If you end a hearing and just say, I'm fighting for the plaintiff, $2,000, you sign it, here's your copy, that's also going to upset them because they don't understand what logic you use to get to that decision. And small claims uh, go appeals, and the truth is if they don't agree, and they get upset, they can't even appeal it or, or, or do anything, but they will call Susan, they will try to argue with someone else over the reason. And, you know, we've said this a hundred times, if you explain the decision, you have a better chance of everyone accepting the decision, even if it's not in their favor, than if you don't, if you don't explain it. And, and I, I do want to reaffirm the, the point that if you start asking too many questions and, and leading the proceedings in that way, you're, 
going to give the impression to somebody that you're not being fair and impartial and Susan's nodding her head, I mean, that's where a lot of the complaints come. Uh, if you're going to ask questions, do it to keep people on track to get, because uh, they can go off on tangents, they don't know what is or isn't relevant. Um, the three questions that, that I like to phrase at, at a small claims hearing is, why does the defendant owe you money? How much money does the defendant owe you? And how did you calculate that? And we Those are Charles's three magic questions, and they're like gold. Um, and I do. I have complaints about small claims cases, and they will say that the hearing officer is totally in favor of the other side, and they help them out, and they just totally agree with everything they said, and they 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 don't they do perceive it sometimes that way. So um, the next couple questions are actual legal questions. Yes. We've moved on to slide nine, and as Susan indicated, there's a couple of legal questions there. Uh, the first one is pretty easy. Um, in an auto accident civil case, what is the effect of a citation by a police officer? Uh, no, none at all. ARS section 28-1599 says it doesn't matter uh, with respect to who's who, who was given the citation has no impact on a civil complaint. Um, so, you know, parties can get all worked up about it and all excited about it, and you're not supposed to consider it, so don't consider it. The next question uh, concerns future damages. So, can, a, a, can you award future damages, or can the plaintiff bring a new suit later um, and avoid res judicata? My response to that is keep in mind that there is a limit of $3,500 and a plaintiff cannot bring, cannot break up that claim to get under the $3,500. A plaintiff also cannot keep filing a lawsuit over the same series of events. So um, there, there, it, is, it will be race judicata. Uh, so the plaintiff should have their ducks in a row and know what their damages are going to be before they proceed. If, if you're going to get into a situation where that might become an issue, uh, I suggest that, uh, that you warn the plaintiff that if, if you're aware of additional damages, and, and this is also going to depend upon where the statute of limitations, um, whether or not they're beyond the statute of limitations, but if they're within the statute of limitations, uh, you might want to um, suggest that the plaintiff, if they want to seek those additional damages, go ahead and dismiss and refile when they know all of their damages. Uh, if there are ongoing medical expenses, then it's probably going to be over $3,500 and it's not going to be in small claims. Um, but I, I would keep that in mind. Judge Huberman has the example of homeowners associations wanting their monthly assessments, and so I'll let you address that. So that's a very type of a particular type of case, the homeowner association, because they file the complaint at a set point in time, but those assessments continue to accrue every single month. So normally you should be able to see in the complaint they should be filing for the amount and for the future assessments that continue to accrue. So I believe that in that case, 
between the time of the complaint that was filed and the time that judgment is signed, it is okay to add whatever assessments have accrued in the meantime. But not nothing that will accrue after the judgment. After the judgment, then they would have to file a new lawsuit. Um, we do get some of the cases in our civil division uh, where the attorneys are involved that they tend to put language in the judgment saying that future assessments should also continue to accrue on that judgment. And I routinely cross that language out because once the judgment is signed, the judgment finalizes the case at that point. But I think that those are the only, and they're not future damages, they're just damages that have accrued between the date of a complaint and the date of the judgment. So I'm hearing no future damages, nothing that would accrue after the date of the judgment. Right. I would say no future damages uh, either on the HOA cases or on any other type of case. I think it's common sometimes. Um, I'll see it sometimes. They'll be like, well, I know that this is the damage that they've caused, but once I get my contractor in there, maybe I'll see that there's additional damage. If you want additional damage, then wait and file your lawsuit later on. You don't get to add it um, onto whatever was already filed. So that we're moving, we've kind of, we're kind of moving chronologically from the beginning of the hearing through the hearing to the, to the legal questions to damages. Now we're going to get to judgments pretty soon. We have a few more questions on damages and rulings, and these have come from cases as well. Charles, Charles? Okay, do you want to ask a question before I answer it? Yeah, Judge uh, Huberman, uh, slide 10. Did you want to address money right, judgments? Right, so... One of the things that um, small claims are, were uh, up until recently, we didn't even have rules for small claims, were just a statutory type of uh, hearing. And the statute that regarding small claims specifically says that um, there cannot be absence for specific performance, which means that you cannot sue someone to do something. You could only sue for monetary damages. So it's, I know it's very common that people just want their car back or they want um, their refrigerator back or whatever it is that they want it to be returned to them or they just want the person to finish the work that they had started. Um, that is not correct in a, a correct complaint in a small claims hearing. So the only thing that you can award is a monetary amount. So if the person wants the refrigerator back, they have to tell you how much the refrigerator is worth, and the judgment would be for that amount. Uh, you be very clear, I've seen um, small claims hearing officers um, ask people to return an item, and that is not a proper judgment in a small claims case. All right, and then um, I, I, apparently there's been some issues about cases being taken under advisement. I want to go back and explain what the reasoning is as to why we would take a case uh, under advisement. Uh, a case would be taken under advisement for uh, 
either because at the time that you need to make the judgment, you do not have all the information you as a hearing officer feel you need, or you don't feel comfortable making the decision because you don't know the law right off the top of your head. You need to review something. If it's something that you can review quickly and take a recess and say, I'll be back in five minutes, you can review it and make your decision there. If you just want to check something um, on the on, on the law or, or something that you're not clear on. Uh, sometimes it could be that they give you a whole binder full of documentation and you feel that you need to read all that documentation, then definitely you will not be able to rule. You would have to take the case under advisement. And I think the other reason that you would take something under advisement is that if it's a very volatile situation where the defendant and the plaintiff, there's just some really bad uh, uh, relationship between them, and you're fearful as to how one of them might react, then I would take the case under advisement, not because I need the extra time, but because you want to avoid then uh, having some kind of reaction in the courtroom, and so you will tell them, I will mail my judgment to you. Um, I would suggest that those should only be used sparingly, that you should not do that routinely. It seems that uh, there's some hearing officers that have gotten into the habit of routinely just taking everything under advisement. Um, I think that this is not a good practice. I think that um, going back to what we spoke about before, that the parties really need to hear the reasoning as to why the decision was made, particularly in a small claims where there is no appeal. And so they might be happy. Somebody's going to walk out of their unhappy because they didn't prevail. But it always is very helpful if they know how you got to the decision that you, that you made. And you can't do that if you routinely take all cases under advisement. If you start spelling out your reasoning and then not make the decision, then that's probably even worse because you leave them in a position where they think that they can still present an argument and, and convince you of the contrary. When you make your decision, you make your decision. And, and on the other hand, I think it's good practice to just be able to make decisions. I know for new hearing officers, you know, it's hard to be in front of people and make a decision for one party and not the other, and you feel bad for the other person. And I get that that can happen, but that's the, the, that's the role you signed up for, and that is how we do things. And I think that the best practice is to use the taking the case under advisement and not ruling immediately, um, very rarely, and only in very specific situations. And if you do so, except for the case where you think people are going to um, have some kind of an emotional reaction, um, the other cases explain exactly why you are not ruling. I need to check up on the law or I need to uh, read the documents first. And kind of a, just a reminder, too, this is maybe some court-specific practices here, so be sure to reach out to your appointing judge to see what their policy is on taking things under advisement, um, um, just to make sure you're inconsistent with that, because there are so good athletes to ask you to talk to them about it. So this is my favorite topic. Um, we're going to talk, well, not, not my favorite topic yet. Well, it could be my favorite topic. This is, uh, this is 
we, we've seen um, some confusion on the form of judgment, and we've got some, uh, we think, an improvement to the form of judgment that we want to talk about. And so Charles is going to take us through those. And, and this is an example of how you can improve something by removing stuff from it. Uh, so what we, and this is very timely, very topical, we just did that this morning in the forms committee. Uh, and, and that is a committee that does revise our forms. Uh, and the chair of that committee is somebody who is incredibly handsome. So what the forms committee did is, uh, you'll see under the plaintiffs, and this is attached to the back of the packet, you'll see under the plaintiff claim uh, for defendants, everything has been removed except for the court costs. And that's because um, if on the plaintiff's claim, if you find that the plaintiff did not meet their burden of proof, then you should be entering judgment for the defendant. And the only thing that the defendant can win is court costs because they don't have a counterclaim uh, uh, under the plaintiff's claim. And then uh, we also changed the language uh, for the it is ordered dismissing this claim. Uh, it used to say dismissing this complaint, and now it says dismissing this claim. In theory, we have removed everything under the plaintiff other than court costs because the same thing on the counterclaim, if the defendant did not meet their burden of proof, then you're going to award judgment to that on the plaintiff, and the only thing that the plaintiff can win for that is the court costs, if any. And we also, under that, um, it is ordered dismissing this, it used to say complaint, and now it says this counterclaim, so that it's clear, uh, there's a clear delineation between what the plaintiff is, is going to be awarded, what they've asked for and what they're going to be awarded, and what the counterclaimant has asked for and is going to be awarded. So if you have any questions on the form, please let me know. Uh, the courts, those should start to be in use um, fairly quickly, uh, and, and we hope that that will resolve any issues that we've had with them. And that leads us to our next uh, slide, which is, I've, been, I've had a lot of law calls about the dismissals with or without prejudice versus judgment for the plaintiff and judgment for the defendant. So we have four options. What is the law on when to use which outcome? And that's you going to take us through all this. All right, first I'm going to start off by explaining what does with prejudice and without prejudice mean. So when something is done with prejudice, it means it's already been judged, and it cannot be judged again. So anything that is uh, dismissed with prejudice cannot be refiled. It is finished. Anything that is done without prejudice means that it can be refiled. So we can, uh, they, they can file the lawsuit again, even though this claim has been dismissed, it doesn't preclude you from coming back and trying again. I will get into the details of this. This is not something we do because we feel sorry for someone. We feel bad for them and we want them to be able to file again. The law indicates when we can file again and when we can. What needs to be dismissed with prejudice, what needs to be dismissed without prejudice. Um, and then the judgment uh, for the defendant and the judgment for the plaintiff, that is uh, 
not a dismissal of the case, but an actual judgment, an actual decision being made by the court of who won the case, who prevailed in the case. So, as you can see, if you follow along on the table, uh, what I just explained would be under the effect. What happens when you uh, do the dismissal, whatever's on the first column, what the effect will be for the parties. Then it says when you are to use it, and then when you as a hearing officer would use it. So well, the first one is the dismiss without prejudice. So with it's without prejudice, that means that the plaintiff can refile the case, and that same defendant can be sued again on that same case. This can only be used before the hearing has started. There will be situations where a judge may dismiss a case with or without prejudice for other reasons than what's on this table. But you as a hearing officer would not see any of those decisions. So for you, you would, the first time you run into a case will be when the hearing has already been set, which means there was a complaint, the complaint was served, and, a and an answer was filed. So the hearing was set. So you can only dismiss without prejudice before the hearing has started. Once the hearing has started, the dismissal will be with prejudice. This is very important. When would you use it? <coughs> so if, if the, all the parties fail to appear in a case, then you would dismiss without prejudice. No one showed up. You don't know what happened. No one is there. The defendant didn't show up to defend the case. You would dismiss without prejudice. So once it's been dismissed, if the plaintiff wants, they can pay another filing fee, and they can start the complaint all over again. Or the plaintiff might walk in and say, we ask the case be dismissed. Whether because they have ongoing damages that they want to add to a complaint, or because they, um, maybe now they want to get an attorney. Now they want to be sure that they have the right to appeal. They're concerned. They don't want to go forward. Before the hearing starts, they can walk in and dismiss the case. In that case, you would dismiss it without prejudice. But once the hearing is started, once you've called the case and the people have sat at the table, you can no longer dismiss without prejudice. Because now the case has become judged. We've started the case. It can no longer be without prejudice. In this case, um, it would be a case, for example, if the defendant appears and the plaintiff did not appear. So they started the case, they had the hearing set, Turns out that they didn't show up. The defendant was there to defend. You would dismiss it with prejudice. You would not put the defendant in a situation when they can keep being sued over and over again at the whim of a plaintiff who decides to show up or not. Or if plaintiff's witness has not appeared. So plaintiff begins to put on their case, and then it turns out that a witness they were waiting for is not coming, they're not showing up, and they can't proceed without that witness. But once your case has already started, too late, the witness didn't appear, you're going to have to dismiss it with prejudice. If the uh, plaintiff files a case, but 
they cannot meet their burden of proof. So you do the whole hearing, you hear all the witnesses, but the plaintiff has not proven their case. That case is not dismissed. That case is a judgment for the defendant. In all court cases, the, uh, there's a filing fee to initiate the case. There is also an answer fee that the defendant must pay when they file an answer. So the defendant who came to court to defend the case had to pay uh, $45 or whatever amount, I don't know right off the top of my head, what the answer fee is in a small claim. But they had to pay that amount in order to file their answer. So if they win the case, if they successfully defended their case, they're entitled to, re to have those $45 returned to them. The only way you can make them get those $45 is by giving the defendant a judgment saying you are entitled to this amount. So if you were to just dismiss the case, then the defendant would not be able to collect on their expense uh, for the case, which was their answer fee. They could maybe have some um, photocopy fees or some other, uh, other expenses that were incurred because of the case only. So you would have to do that as a judgment for the defendant because they have a right to recover the money that they expended because they were sued. And then lastly, the judgment for the plaintiff, that will be once the hearing is concluded and the plaintiff did meet their burden of proof, so they were able to prove their claim, they win the money judgment, and they get the money and the defendant loses. So in that case, they would get the money that they sued for. They would also get their filing fees and whatever court costs, they would probably have the cost for our service that you could add on to that. And that would be the judgment for the plaintiff. Well, there could be interest on that. We'll talk about that on a different slide. But that's what would be on the judgment. Um, I hope that was understood. I know that it's a complicated topic sometimes to understand when you use a dismissal, when you use a judgment. And but if, if you get to the end of the hearing and you make a decision on the merits of the case, you would have a judgment, either for plaintiff or defendant, not a dismissal. Very helpful, Jeff. Thank you. Um, and this one, I guess this one is a, is a specific, next one is a specific question. Charles, did you want to add something to the grid? Yeah, uh, with respect to the failures to appear, uh, Rule 12C of the Small Claims Rules of Procedure does make some of that mandatory. So use the, look at this chart and use this chart and, um, and, and comply with the Rules of Small Claims Procedure. All right, we'll slide, okay. uh, move on to slide 13. And the question here was, uh, when you have, what does it mean to prevail when you have a judgment for the plaintiff for zero dollars? So I assume the plaintiff has to burn the truth. They, sort of, they, they won their case, but they don't have any damages. 
what you cannot is um, award, well, I mean, you would have a contract in order to award it interest that's different than what the statute establishes as interest. So you would actually have to see that written contract. Let's say, for example, you have a case which is the Homeowners Association where the CCNR is usually established a separate interest rate. Um, they could establish sometimes there's 12% or 14% interest rate in this. But the plaintiff did not attach the contract when you are uh, deciding your judgment. If you can't see that contract, you cannot apply a contractual interest rate. You have to see the contract and to in, to where it indicates that that's the interest rate you're using. If not, then the statutory interest rate goes into effect. So in subsection A, uh, the interest would be 10% unless it's a different interest rate contracted for in writing. Subsection B talks about interest on the judgment. So this is not the interest on the loan itself or on the obligation itself, but on the contract, on the judgment once a judgment has been signed. So for that, it says that the statute says that it is the prime rate plus 1% or 10%, whichever is lower. Um, it's been lower than 10% for many, many, many years, and it looks like it's going to be lower for many, many, many more. Uh, right now, that prime rate is 3.25. When we add the 1%, the interest rate on the judgment would be 4.25%. But again, this subsection says that if there is a different interest rate provided for in a specific statute or it is contracted in writing at a different rate, then it will be the contract rate that applies. So when we talk about um, the contract rate, we've all seen that we have some contracts that have a rate of 10%, some contracts have a rate of 6%, and we have a lot of contracts, uh, you, I know that you see them often in your small claims, that have a rate of 200%. And we so, move, we've moved on to slide 15. Yes. Uh, we're on to the next slide. Um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, this, the language on this, uh, on, 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 um, on the resources that you have, is language that we expect will be approved as a best practice uh, for the Maricopa County's Justice Court, which means this will be a best practice for all the judges and for the hearing officers. Um, we have not finalized the best practice yet, um, but I think that this will end up being the final language. So the problem that I don't think that there's really an issue when we have an interest rate that's not in these large, high numbers, which is what we find in the title law. Um, with any other type of interest rate, I mean, 12% might be a little high for how the economy is now with the lower interest rates, but it is a contractual rate that seems within the norm, and I don't think it ever has an issue with those types of interest rates. So, 
the, what happens with interest is when the loan uh, was unpaid at a certain point, the interest continues to accrue on that loan. And it accrues until the day that you, as a hearing officer, sign the judgment. That is what we call prejudgment interest. So you had, let's just make things really, really simple. You signed a contract on January 2nd of 2019 at 12% uh, interest or $1,000. And you signed the judgment on January 2nd of 2020. A year has gone by. The $1,000, you're going to add $120 as prejudgment interest. It is very important, though, that when you enter these amounts on your form of judgment, the principal that is owed is the $1,000. The interest that is owed is the $120. Regardless of what interest rate we use going forward after the judgment is signed, you cannot add interest to the interest. The interest will continue to accrue on the principal, not on the interest. You need to make sure that you separate it. I know that in the in the title loan cases, uh, sometimes those are all bunched up, and you need to make sure that you are getting them to tell you to separate the principal from the interest. So the prejudgment interest is what accrues until the day of the judgment, and. If the amount of the debt is not in dispute, that amount is authorized. It's presumed to be valid, though it is rebuttable if it is what we consider an unconscionable amount. So I think that most people probably agree that 200% or 180%, whatever amount is unconscionable, and those are the high interest rates that everybody has a hard time dealing with. After the judgment, as we saw, the statute says that the post-judgment interest would be the 4.25%. But if the contract establishes a different amount, that is the amount that goes, that goes on the contract. So again, um, if you consider that that amount is unconscionable, for example, the 200%, maybe you're not going to apply that interest rate to that judgment. So, what is the best way to deal with when you have that those large interest rates? I I think, and then this is what the best practice um, kind of takes into account, is that it depends on when that case was filed. That is the essence of the title loan. Those short loans, the, the short period loans that are um, divided, they, they, they were envisioned to take you out of an emergency that you need the money now so you can pay the, the, the car that broke down, so you can continue going to work, and that you just needed these $500 for, for, for a month. They have very, very high interest rates, but the idea is that you will pay that off in a month or two months or three months. And so the interest rate might be very high, but if you pay it off after 90 days, um, it, it, it's not a ridiculous amount of money, as opposed to 
you didn't pay it off, they couldn't find you, they came back and sued you on this two, two years later, and now instead of the $500, it turns out that you owe $2,800 on an original $500 loan. So I think that when we talk about the prejudgment interest, a lot of it depends on how old that case is. Most judges, from what I have heard, uh, and again, you might want to consult with the judge in your court to see what it is they do and what they prefer, is that if the, the, the lawsuit is filed pretty close to when uh, the, the loan defaulted, they would probably use that large interest rate through the date of judgment, up to the date of judgment, but not after the judgment. They wouldn't apply the 200% after the judgment has been signed. But if it's a three-year-old case or a two-year-old case where the amount has ballooned, um, then they might have cut it off at a different point and not even give the whole pre-judgment interest. And then post-judgment, that would be reduced to either the 10% or the 4.5%, uh, according to whatever the practice is in the court. And then lastly, the interest on the cost, the costs don't come in until after a judgment is signed. It's part of the award in the judgment, where you are, the cost would be the filing cost and the cost of service. That would only get the statutory amount for post-judgment interest, which is the prime rate plus 1%, which today sits at 4.5%. It, it, you know, I, I, I am sure there might be some judges out there that still consider that if you signed a contract, whatever rate you signed was the rate that you signed up for, and that if you did not pay that obligation, that is the rate that will follow that loan forever. And that judge might uh, go ahead and award the 200% prejudgment and continue the 200% post-judgment. Uh, that is a possibility. Um, I think that more and more I hear that uh, people really don't want to do that. It just uh, becomes an, an unmanageable amount because that judgment uh, turns out uh, very high amounts and that the person is never going to be able to pay off that judgment. And because the, 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 the idea behind the very high interest rate is that it is a short-term loan. No one would sign a long-term loan for 200%. So the idea is that that amount of interest only makes sense in the short term. And so usually that is cut off at some point, either at the judgment or before the judgment, depending on how long that period is. And then after the judgment, you would definitely go down to the, to the statutory amount. And again, if you... If you are in a court, um, know what what your judge, uh, what their preferences are, because if you sign a judgment at 202% interest, uh, when it comes up for the 10-year renewal, um, that is going to be well above $3,500. Uh, those, those things get crazy high, uh, and so you're, you're not going to be making your judge happy if, if your judge is like most of the judges and don't want to be awarding post-judgment interest at 
helpful and clear. Thank you for that exhaustive review of interest. Um, we're going to switch topics and go to civil traffic. And uh, these are all topics that are either really topical from what's going on right now in virtual hearings or some things that have come up over the course of the last year, uh, just questions and concerns. And so we're going to talk first about masking. Uh, we probably covered this before, but we need to refresh on what's masking. Um, and, and it seems like it comes up and it doesn't present itself as masking. So I'm a little, Charles, could you talk about that? Yes, uh, and uh, masking is going to happen when there is an attorney for the defendant uh, who no doubt has a, a commercial driver's license, a CDL, and the attorney is going to begin with, Your Honor, we have great news. We, we've come to a plea agreement. Uh, and that should always set off bells in your mind. Um, one, that the person has an attorney and two, that there's a plea agreement because the officer is a witness, the officer is not a party, he's not a representative, he, he's not someone who can bind the state in a plea agreement. So that should be setting off uh, um, bells for you. And we do have, we've done several classes on this, and, and if you go to the Hightail Judicial Resources website, you'll find several PowerPoints on this. The most recent one we did was, uh, it, you'll find the 2019 October QCC, that's Qu uh, Quarterly Collaborative Conference Masking. And um, in fact, when we send out the email on this, we'll go ahead and, and or actually I'll just add it to the PowerPoint so that you'll know which one that is, which one it's called. Uh, you really should look at that. And, and what masking is and why this is a, a concern is there are federal laws, and this ties to federal highway funds, where um, we don't want states to, to go easy on someone with a commercial driver's license and hide uh, a, a serious violation by reducing it to a lower violation that would not result in a penalty to a commercial driver's license. Um, commercial driver's licenses are required nationwide to ensure that a driver in one state is recognized in, in another state as having committed violations. And if you commit too many violations, you're going to lose your CDL, which is something that we want before they fall asleep at the wheel and, and um, drive into houses or into police cars or run over, run over people. Um, so we can lose federal highway funds if this um, it continues to happen. There are a few jurisdictions where this happens a lot. If you've got the major freeways in your precincts, um, then the, you're going to see this a lot. And again, uh, if, if there's an attorney who, who says we've got a plea agreement, that may be a problem. And the way trying to make a speeding violation a, an equipment violation, the question you should be asking the police officer is, um, do you believe that you can prove the speeding violation? And if the answer is yes, then, well, we're going to proceed then with the speeding violation. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to call me on that. So again, uh, bullet point number two is that is where you need to, where it should be setting off bells that this is masking. Uh, the third point, again, the officers. But, just... So 
number two is what happens when the defendant is not a CDL holder, does oh. not hold the drug? Yeah, anything different there? Uh, again, the the officer is not an attorney representing the state. He's a witness. So my question would be to the officer: Can you prove the original violation? And if the answer is yes, then then I would proceed on the original violation. If the officer says um, no, I can't prove that, um, but I I can prove the lesser violation, then I I would go ahead and um, I would allow that. Uh, and sometimes what we see is the officer, there's no, I guess my concern is, let's say it's a speeding violation that they've negotiated down to a seatbelt violation, but there's no allegation of a seatbelt violation on the citation itself. And and so my second question of the officer would, would be, can you prove a seatbelt violation? And and if he says yes, then I would, I would accept that. So, um, you know, put the officer under oath, and if that is his testimony, what you'll frequently find is the officer will say, well, I, I probably can prove the speeding violation, and that my answer is, well, then let's proceed on the speeding violation. The third point, and occasionally you'll see an officer try to pull this off, uh, where they'll try to ask questions of the defendant. Uh, they can't do that, the, the officer uh, is just a witness. The officer cannot ask questions of the defendant. What I will do is, uh, and again, you want to be fair and impartial, is after, uh, if the defendant has exhibits, um, as part of the officer's rebuttal, I'll say to the officer, did you want to respond to anything testified to by the defendant or uh, respond to or, or comment on the exhibits uh, and give the officer uh, the opportunity for the rebuttal, uh, which the officer is entitled to anyway, but have him address that there. You cannot, you cannot allow the officer to cross-examine the defendant. So again, keep in mind the officer oh, is not a party. Uh, now, an issue that we're going to have in virtual hearings is in-person identification and we've given you rule 10.1 which does say that um, and this this is the same thing when an attorney uh, shows up without the defendant well we can't do an in-person identification if the defendant is not there now if the defendant says well hold on a second this isn't fair because I didn't ask for the in-person I, uh, I didn't ask for the, the telephonic or virtual hearing um, I wanted. I want uh, to require an in-person identification. Then your response can be fine. We'll go ahead and continue this matter until such time as uh, we are allowing civil traffic hearings to take place in person again. Uh, and Charles, can oh, there you go. Yes. So. Um, I, I think. All right, and then the other issue with virtual hearings is the officer's notes. Uh, the rules do allow the person, uh, the defendant, to review the officer's notes before the hearing. That typically takes place minutes before the hearing. There is no other discovery for that. Uh, so what do we do for that? And for that, I would... Um, I, I, I could say I, I've got the notes and I'm going to read them out loud um, 
if we have the ability to scan and email them uh, to the defendant, we can do that. Or again, uh, continue the matter. Uh, one of my mottos is a continuance cures many ills. Uh, so when somebody complains that this isn't fair or I need more time, um, then I, I would just go ahead and continue that. And we'll move on to slide 17. And this is just a slide for some um, where the materials might be, some helpful things, and some reminders that have come up over the course of the uh, last six months or eight months or so. Now, we have new 2020 bench books for small claims and civil traffic. I think I have emailed out to all the hearing officers these small claims excerpts, but uh, we plan to email out these excerpts to you again. But they, uh, they, are, they are on the O-Drive. Um, you can only access the O-Drive from court on a court computer, so which might be difficult to do right now. So I think Charles is discussing possibly creating a high-scale site just for hearing officers that would have these bench books on it if we're allowed. I don't know if that's possible or not. But if not, we'll email them out to you again. And then, um, and then again, I'll email out the new small claims rules. I have sent them out once already, but we can just add that again. Um, you may want to, um, a couple of mentions, uh, just reminding what is relevant and when to talk and some time limits because I've had a few complaints where folks don't know when they're supposed to be talking or how, how long the cases are supposed to go. They don't know that there's another case set perhaps an hour down the way and they, don't, they feel like they didn't get a chance to speak because they went, from your perspective, the case went over time and from their perspective it didn't. So that might be helpful um, just to give them a heads up at the beginning. Please remember to record in, in our policy, recording on FTR is, is, is very, very, very important. Um, so hopefully that will be handled for you during these virtual times. Um, and again, the new small claims rules, there's not a lot of changes to that, but there are some new rules, so you might want to read through those. A couple of the ethics reminders under policy um, and under judicial ethics, uh, we, we had to do some digging on this and found out that when you put your hearing officer status with the courts on any advertising or professional profile for profit, we are not allowed to use our position with justice courts for personal or pecuniary gain. So um, it's, it's, not the, it's not about being false or true, it's just that we're not to use our status with the courts for our own professional advertising purposes. Uh, that's an ethical if you have questions about that, please reach out to me. And then uh, please, con please report to us any contact from the Commission on Judicial Conduct, even if it's informal. We understand, and uh, we, we just need to know. So I think that with that, we are at the end of our topics. Um, we have some miscellaneous. We have a slide that we um, collectively thought might be kind of interesting to talk about in terms of judicial demeanor. And we have uh, we may have some follow-up for a round of questions at the end. So, I don't know, Judge, did you want to chime in on this um, slide and start us off? Yeah, I just want to I just saw this slide recently. Um, I, I mean, I've been working on self-represented litigants and, and court demeanor uh, for, for a while now, but I had never seen this slide in particular. This apparently was created for mediators, but as soon as I read it, I it struck me that this uh, applies to all judicial officers, and so uh, I told Susan that we should include this for all of us. I think this is just a good list to, to read through, have a little bit of introspection, 
look at yourself, see yourself, see which of these things might apply to you. Um, we know, you know, we've heard about what the tricks are. If you feel yourself uh, falling into any of these things, you know, take a break, take a step back, um, get a cup of coffee so you don't fall asleep in the hearing, whatever it is that you need to do to not fall into these things. But I think it's really important to look at these and see, you know, how any of these things might be affecting uh and I think this is, you know, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I think one or more of these things, or probably more, have happened to me uh, occasionally. And I think the issue would be if I happened all the time, but, uh, you know, I think it happens, and we just need to be, uh, I think you just need to be aware of them. And I think if you're aware of them, that will help you deal with them. I think the problem is when we're not aware, and then it gets out of hand. Uh so I think this is a really good list just to look at and to consider. All right. Very natural some questions. Yeah, very natural feelings. We all have them, as as I say, addressing them and uh, moving them to the side is helpful. So yeah, I have three three quick questions, I guess. One is on um, oral evidence. Do, can we take oral evidence, or do we have to have receipts, written receipts? Oh, it's not quite. I think one thing that we always forget is that people, because the, the, the litigants tend to look at it that way, that testimony is evidence. When we talk about what kind of evidence exists, and we talk about documents and, and you know, physical exhibits, and testimony is one of the forms of evidence. So anything that anyone testifies to is evidence. So if we don't have the receipt, that the person says, I lost the receipt, but I know I paid $300. I, I went into my bank statement and I checked that the bank card showed that it was $326.15. That is testimony, that is evidence. As all testimony, the hearing officer decides what is credible and what is not credible and what weight to give that evidence. But definitely testimony is evidence. Well, I, we hear all the time, they presented no evidence because the other party thinks, where's the video? You don't have the video to show what happened. It didn't happen. But me telling you what happened, that's evidence also. Uh, I actually had an attorney um, who was defending a case of, of like a $45 parking ticket who said, Your Honor, there, there was no evidence of, of the violation. And I said, uh, well, the officer's testimony was evidence of the violation. And by the way, this is a civil case, so I can take a negative inference by your client's failure to testify. Um, the client, I hope, didn't pay very much for that attorney. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, good reminder. Um, bad faith. A case brought in bad faith. Um, in a small claims case. Would we dismiss with prejudice in that case and, uh, against the plaintiff? Would we penalize the plaintiff in that way? How does that affect the judgment? Well, I, I mean, I don't know how we would penalize a, a plaintiff, but I don't, I, again, I don't understand what, um, what that state would be. So, I mean, as judges, we resolve the case uh, based on the complaint and the merits of the case. 
whatever we, our personal opinions, I guess we go back to this list on the last slide, um, whatever our personal opinions about the attorney, about the, the party, or about uh, whoever um, is actually irrelevant, that we should not uh, put any of our personal feelings into our decision, um, and that, um, I, I, I just don't know what, I mean, I think the, the, the idea of that faith comes because what we feel is a proper case or not a proper case, and then we're putting our own personal feelings on that, and I don't think uh, we should. I would probably caution that if you really feel that strongly about a certain litigant, especially if it's someone that you see often in court, uh, you might want to consider recusing yourself if, if your feelings are really that strong the point that you feel that, uh, that 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 you want to sanction them or something. Uh, that, that's something you might want to consider. I, you know, I recently had a case where there were two conflicting order of protection, and I, we held a hearing on the case, and uh, the husband testified uh, in, on behalf of his sister in, in, in one of the cases. And I didn't believe anything he said. And then, following week, I had a case where he was the plaintiff in the case. And I was going to have to hear that case. And I just said, you know, I already made a decision that I didn't believe you. Uh, I'm going to move this case to a different judge because I don't think I can be fair and impartial in the next case. So, it's, normally you should be able to separate what happened in a previous case with the following case. But there are situations where if you feel that strongly that you think it could affect your decision, then you need to consider not hearing the case. And, and, That's great. And, and I'll respond by saying uh, go back to slide number 12 and look at that chart and your decision on whether to make the ruling with, pre with or without prejudice is based on that chart and not what, you've, what, uh, what motive you have on the part of the plaintiff. That's very helpful. And the last question I have, I think this is my last question, is interpreters. Um, and we had a, a request from one of the hearing officers just to review again what are the options, what language line, you know, how, what, what, what are the options, what, what's the best way to go about getting interpreters? So, I, it all depends on the location where, where, where the court that you're serving is. Uh, there are, I mean, I, I, obviously everything has changed now uh, for the last couple of months, but uh, in locations, for example, in the Downtown Justice Center, in the Southwest Justice Center, there are actually interpreter offices and interpreters on staff. So if you need an interpreter for your hearing, it would just have the clerk of the court uh, email the interpreter's office, request for the hearing. Uh, be aware that the same interpreter, uh, there might be one interpreter for several courts and you might have to wait, uh, but they would send you the interpreter in person and you would have them in your court. There are places like in the Northwest uh, Justice Center that they never get in-person interpreters. All of their interpreters are always remote. So the experience of working in those courts is also different. You would always have the interpreter uh, on the phone. When you work with an in-person interpreter, 
the interpreter would do uh, simultaneous interpreting, which means that at the same time that you are talking, the interpreter would be uh, speaking in a soft voice, so as not to speak over the judicial officer, but the interpreter would be saying the exact thing that you're saying to the party that they're interpreting for. When you do it remotely, when the interpreter comes over the loudspeaker or over the phone, then the interpreting has to be what we call consecutive. It cannot be at the same time, which means that the way that you approach the case is also different. It means that you have to speak in chunks. You have to give the interpreter uh, the ability to interpret because if you talk for 10 minutes straight, the interpreter will not be able to interpret what you said. So you will need to go in um, in smaller segments. Make sure that you don't just stop in the middle of a sentence at any word. Make sure that you, that when you stop, you've, you've spoken a whole thought process, uh, a, a whole thought, a whole idea, and then stop if the interpreter the possibility to interpret and then continue. Uh, that, uh, that, that's how it works with executive interpreting. And like we talked about, that is the way that we will interpret um, on the videos, even if they're in person, there's no way to do that simultaneously. Now, if you do not have an in-person interpreter, where do you get your interpreters from? And, you know, I would suggest you definitely go to the court to ask your court first. Uh, they should be calling the the interpreter, not you. Uh, they're used because a lot of them, the court interpreter's office themselves has remote interpreters. But you wouldn't necessarily use someone from language line. You would use one of the court interpreters. But they just don't come to the building. They do it remotely. That would be the preference, first of all, because it's, it's obviously cheaper for the court because these are staff interpreters and they are better qualified interpreters. So that would always be your, your, your first, um, and what you want to go to first. Obviously, if it's a language that's not Spanish, then you have to go through the remote interpreting through a phone interpreter because those are not on staff. Unless you know ahead of time or the, the court knew ahead of time that they were going to be requiring an interpreter for that case, they might have ordered one to come in person. So you would need to definitely talk to the staff to know how all of that's going to work. Um, and again, I would just suggest that you ask staff who to call. We used to use language line. Everybody's heard of language line and everybody says language line as, as like we talk about Phoenix. It's like the generic brand. Uh, we no longer are using language line. We're using other providers. So even if the court tells you language line, I think we might be using another company. So just be sure you run it by the court. They will, uh, they have to give you the access code, how to request the interpreter, how to put in the code. So it gets to the right courtroom and all that. So I definitely I wouldn't do any of that on my own without first consulting with the with the clerk. Judge, you stopped your eviction trial in the middle and got an interpreter for a reason. Can you talk about would a hearing officer be able to make that same kind of evaluation and stop and get an interpreter? Um, I I I mean I've worked in language for many, many years in my life and I have, I, I can, I have a perception of language. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I think that anyone who pays attention, and that's why it's important to look at 
at, at the people. What are they understanding? What are their facial expressions? How, you know, you, you can kind of sometimes read it in their face. You can tell by what they're answering. You can tell if they got a complex question and they just said yes. Um, in this case, I felt the one that I stopped is because, first of all, the attorney was being very leading with the questions. And so I felt that the witness wasn't, was just saying yes to everything. Because when the witness was given the opportunity to speak, he was saying different things than when the attorney was leading him. And so I wasn't exactly sure what was being understood or not. Um, I, I just think, you know, you just kind of have to, you know, pay attention and, and, and see what you can tell. I mean, I think that even not knowing the language, you can still, I mean, I don't speak Japanese, and I can tell sometimes when the Japanese interpreter is not doing a good job. So, um. I, I had a Mandarin interpreter, and the, the interpreter sighed before every, every, uh, bit. A lot of it could be cultural, you don't know, but yes. Um, it, it's, uh, what I would say, if you're using an interpreter on the phone, who's not someone from the court interpreter's office, set up the hearing first. Let the interpreter know what they're getting into. Because they can't speak, they don't know how many people are in the courtroom, they don't know how many people will be speaking. So you might want to tell them, we're doing a small claims hearing. I'm the judicial officer. Uh, the defendant is the one who needs the interpreter, and the plaintiff is going to be asking them questions. Just so they know how many people are there and how many people will be speaking. That, that reminds me of a, a tip that I, that I saw that came up recently. There's also a temptation on the telephone to raise your voice as a judicial officer to to contain the cacophony of voices that are on the phone. Um, on GoToMeeting, we have the ability to mute everybody, so we don't have to, to do that. Uh, Judge, do you want to address that? I would encourage us not to do that, but there it is, it is a temptation because it, the, the litigants do not know which voices the judges. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, that's why for me it's so important that you always introduce yourself you always let them know who you are and what you're going to be doing. You know, what I think is that we asked them, you know, today I did an arraignment calendar. We must have done 15 criminal arraignments. We did them all by phone in the virtual courtroom. And we just asked everyone to mute, but not because anyone was, I mean, someone would get on the line and start talking because they didn't, they came in late, didn't know what was going on. But in general, it's just because, um, not because they're talking, but because there's a lot of interference when there's several phones going on. And so I think that that's just a good excuse that if you have any issues, just tell everybody that you're muting them to keep the audio clean, and they don't need to know that you're muting them because they're just being too loud or something. Well, actually, this has been fantastic for me. I think we have covered all of the questions that I've seen and I've been collecting uh, over the last probably six or eight months or so since the last update. I did send out a hearing officer reminder email in January, but I've been collecting topics from before then, and I didn't think an email was anywhere near sufficient. So this has been really great to talk about. And uh, anything, any further guidance or direction? Yeah, I did begin the podcast by saying that Sue, um, Professor Dykoff was currently our 
still our admin pro, Tim. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, that may no longer be the case. Susan, what are you doing? I am... Uh I have accepted a wonderful position with uh, Southern Arizona Legal Aid as a director of the Volunteer Lawyers Program. So I will be working in uh, Pima County, well, no, sorry, in Tucson, serving the nine counties that that legal aid organization serves, connecting clients with lawyers. And I have actually sent out an announcement to everybody so everyone knows. Um, I'm, I have told them that there's a wonderful team at Admin that is ready to answer all questions and concerns. Um, but I'm always, I'm not going very far, and uh, I certainly, I think I have to arrange speakers as part of my next uh, project, so uh, I may be looking to the two of you to do some speaking duties, especially since we can do it by virtual right now. I just want to mention that Susan will be missed, I mean, she's been a great asset, and I know that uh, all of you, the hearing officers, have come to rely on her. I think that, you know it'll take a while to get uh, someone uh, qualified into the position and someone who will be as effective as Susan. So in the meantime, uh, we are all here to help. Uh, and I think you know Susan did a good job today in identifying the topic. And we just encourage everyone to continue asking the questions. I think that one of the things that I learned early on um, in, in in my career is that it's no embarrassment to ask questions because if you ask questions, then you know that you're going to do it right. If you're embarrassed to ask the question, you might be out there doing it wrong forever and never know. So I think it, it, it is a sign of an interest in getting better and an interest in, in, in doing you know, things correctly. And so I encourage everyone to continue asking the questions. Uh, I am no longer the chair of the pro temp committee, uh, that is Judge Kathy Riggs. Uh, I know a lot of you have dealt with me in the past also, uh, but I am the chair of the education committee now. So whether it be to me or to Charles Adornetto or to Judge Kathy Riggs, you know, continue to reach out to us and continue to uh, strive to make the Maricopa County uh, Justice Court uh, professional and 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 a great place for, for justice. And I want to say, you know, we weathered through a really interesting year and a half of uh, having this wonderful set of dedicated and excited hearing officers, and we, we have kept and trained so many folks that were recruited for a pilot program that ended up being discontinued, and we weathered through that really well as a group. But I'm just so proud of the hearing officers. Um, the, the experienced ones and the new ones and the amount of energy and vitality that, that is there. And I'm aware that everyone is a volunteer and, um, and that they took, take a lot of time and effort into this work and care and consideration. And I think it's just a, a real, really inspiring. And, and, and I will also uh, thank the hearing officers for their service. It, uh, you're really going above and beyond for the courts and for the community. Uh, this, this has been a trying couple of months. I'm referring to COVID and not to Susan. A uh, trying couple of months. Uh, uh, we're all, this, this hit us by surprise. Obviously, we uh, were not fully prepared for this. Uh, and um, we're working our way through this with telephones and virtual meetings. And um, things can only get better. 
and uh, thank you so much, Susan. Uh, thank you so much to our hearing officers. Please stay safe. Please uh, don't touch your face. Stay healthy and socially distance. Thank you.